This was a great model of being able to deliver excitement and messages by integrating the community that's here at this event and really representing what's going on here. This is the Box Office Podcast. Today is Thursday, August 26th, day four of CinemaCon 2021. I am Daniel Luria, the editorial director of Box Office Pro, the only publication in North America exclusively dedicated to theatrical exhibition. Joined once again by my co-host, Rebecca Pauly, deputy editor of Box Office Pro. Guys, this is probably going to be our longest episode yet. We have recaps of The Neon Universal, Disney, and Focus Features presentations, followed by a conversation with Dolby's Jed Harmson, Vice President of Cinema and Content Solutions. And concluding this episode is going to be an exclusive recording from Monday's Executive Roundtable panel here at CinemaCon. Globally speaking, a look at the international market. It features panel members Mookie Greidinger, CEO of Cineworld, Veronica Kwan Vandenberg, President of International Distribution at Universal, Alejandro Ramirez Magaña, CEO of Cinepolis, Mark Vian, President of International Distribution at Paramount Pictures, and was moderated by Nancy Tartaglione, the International Box Office Editor at Deadline. But before we get started, here is a message from our sponsors. Today's episode is brought to you by Dolby Laboratories. Elevate your cinema offering with Dolby. Dolby boasts a diverse portfolio of products for every auditorium need, from Dolby Cinema, Dolby's pinnacle movie-going experience, to Dolby Atmos, their premium immersive audio offering, to auditorium packages tailored for any size theater and everything in between. Dolby also offers a full range of audio, imaging, accessibility, and content management solutions designed to give audiences a best-in-class cinema experience. Discover the Dolby difference. Learn more at professional.dolby.com forward slash cinema. Oreo Cookies has figured out a way to take a concession stand classic to the next level. That's right, it's Oreo Popcorn, and it's popping up at theaters across the country. This new blockbuster treat is made with real Oreo cookie pieces, drizzles of Oreo-based cake, and drizzles of Oreo cream. What better way to welcome back moviegoers than with an amazing salty and sweet treat that combines America's favorite cookie and popcorn to create true movie theater magic. Want to taste a snack that's destined to be a hit for yourself? You can head over to oreopopcornsample.com for a complimentary sample of Oreo popcorn. Again, that's oreopopcornsample.com to get your complimentary Oreo popcorn sample today. So let's start looking at the schedule. Rebecca, it's the last day of CinemaCon. What do we have on tap? We have a lot on tap, actually. It looks to be a very busy day and a very informative day, starting out with two 8 a.m. seminars being held in the Palace Ballrooms from industry groups, one of those the National Association of Concessionaires, other the ICTA, both forward-looking sessions looking at the food service and technology industries and, and the intersection between those areas and exhibition. Then we have uh, some studio presentations still to come up. 10 a.m., we're hearing from Paramount, 
1230, a lunch panel with Paramount, Cinemark, and, and Marcus. The meals are always good at CinemaCon, but it does look like there's going to be a really uh, interesting and informative panel there. And then 245, the final presentation of CinemaCon 2021, we will be hearing from Lionsgate. That feels appropriate to me that we started off with Sony, who are very dedicated to uh, theatrical exclusivity, and ending with Lionsgate, with their Lionsgate Live series, very supportive of the Will Rogers Foundation. They're fitting to me, and I appreciate them closing it out. It feels right. Yeah, and I think we're all excited. This is probably the most packed day this Thursday, I think, the whole week, right? Oh, indeed, indeed. But before we get into today's coverage, let's look back at a very busy Wednesday here at CinemaCon The day began with a breakfast from Neon, the specialty distributor, where we saw trailers from the Palme d'Or winner Titan and a trailer from another title that actually debuted in the festival scene, uh, Flea, which actually got a lot of great notices coming out of Sundance uh, this past year. That's poised to be an awards contender. And then it closed with the first look of a scene from Chilean filmmaker Pablo Larraín Spencer is the movie. It's starring Kristen Stewart as Princess Diana. We got to see a scene. I can tell you it has vibes of that style we saw in Jackie. Mm -hmm. I guess there's probably going to be a lot of DNA shared between these two titles. Yes, a a cinematic universe of uh, behind-the-scenes glimpses of perhaps misrepresented or, uh, I don't want to say mysterious, but historically significant public female figures. So I'm I'm excited for that uh, cinematic universe to expand. And that's going to be, I think, a solid award slate that we're already seeing from Neon. So important. We spoke about this last year because the Academy Awards were pushed much further than they usually are. We didn't get a typical award season this year, of course, with the return of the film festivals. It looks like we will. And it's great to see Neon come out with early looks at these titles. Yeah, uh, Spencer is definitely one that I'm looking forward to. And Following that, uh, we had the, I don't really know what we call it, a Disney presentation. Of course, no one, no one from Disney appeared at CinemaCon. They did do a presentation of Shang-Chi and the Ten Rings. Yeah, I was not uh, able to attend that, you know, meetings upon meetings as it goes at CinemaCon. But I've been hearing positive buzz about the film. Certainly do intend to see it on the big screen. I actually went just to see if there was going to be any introduction or a sizzle reel, something from Disney. I was really curious because... As we've seen from different distributors, they haven't brought executives in some occasions for these presentations, but they still put in the time to have a nice message. In this case, a curious detail, we had an introduction to the screening from Kevin Feige, the head of Marvel Studios, very influential there, with two of the film's stars. Disney executives proper? Not really. And understand in the background in this film, This is a theatrically exclusive title, the first Marvel title to do so. Comments from Bob Chapik, the CEO of Disney, at a recent investor call. He might have used language, I think, that that probably positioned Shang-Chi as a quote-unquote experiment. The film's lead star had, let's say, a public disagreement about that choice of words from the studio executive and uh, was very vocal about it on Twitter. You pair that with the last Marvel title to hit screens, that title's protagonist also seems to be having disagreements with the studio over theatrical exclusivity. So I think it was uh, a pointed detail that there was a message to exhibitors 
and it came from the film's producers mm-hmm. and two of its stars. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to me. I, I wonder if with Shang-Chi compared to Black Widow, you know, one of the stars of that film is Tony Leung, who is a gigantic, huge star in China, and rightfully so. Something that we've been hearing about throughout CinemaCon and that you will be hearing about in the International Day panel that we're presenting at the end of this this podcast episode is how day and date just has immensely affected piracy. So you wonder uh, how that international angle came into play uh, with Shang-Chi's release strategy. Yeah, a lot of things to keep in mind. So even though Disney really, I can't even say phoned it in because they weren't even on the phone, (laughs) the filmmakers of Shang-Chi were, and they did put in the time to have a nice little video introduction. But let's move on to, let's really call it, an opposite way of doing things, uh, I think for the much better really here for everyone attending CinemaCon, mm-hmm. the universal presentation. Rebecca, we've seen a lot of great presentations and we talked about this when we were talking about the challenge that Warner Brothers had in their presentation yesterday, mm-hmm. being mostly in video. This is how you do a video presentation, I think. It was thoughtful. The production value was there. Well, but before we get to that, I mean, Jim Orr did come out and... You can't not talk about F9. Right. Um, it, and he it, came out in person. We, we have to say this. It was he, both. He was there. Yeah, it was Jim Moore, the head of distribution over at Universal and his counterpart on the international side of things, Veronica Kwan Vandenberg, who you will hear from in the panel session shortly. Yeah. And I mean, what can you say about F9? It is the highest grossing worldwide title of the pandemic era. There was a video of the stars of the film specifically addressing and thanking CinemaCon and exhibitors, you know, I feel like John Cena looked into my soul and said, thank you. So um, box ticked. That's what I wanted. One last thing for the bucket list. Yeah. That's great. But yeah, so just really celebrating F9, highlighting uh, the return to theaters campaign, of course, that Vin Diesel kind of kicked off with uh, See You in the Movies. It was really a good reminder, I think, of the fact that amidst the doom and gloom reports that for some reason, outlets persist in, in pushing. Movies have hit and do hit and will hit. And then later on in that presentation, we got to see some of those future films from big action blockbusters like F9 to their specialty distributor division focus features and the more, let's say, quote unquote, adult titles. Now, let me preface all of this by explaining what Universal did during this presentation. They had eight titles to showcase. Six of them, Rebecca, original titles. Something that Jim Orr was really stressing was a big part of Universal's strategy in the next coming years. They have two sequels, Halloween Kills and Sing 2. The rest of them are original movies. And Jim was very upfront in saying, this is going to be a big commitment from our studio moving forward. Mm -hmm. Now, they had stars if each of these titles come up introduce their movies to the audience through a video presentation. And in doing so, they also mentioned one of their favorite cinemas that they go to. And then the presentations cut to cinema workers from each of these locations. It was great. The first one to go up was actually Matthew McConaughey in his video address introducing Sing 2 and also plugging uh, an Alamo Drafthouse location over in Austin And then we had a fantastic example of representative from that location introducing the film as well. What did you think of that footage? 
just the production value of going from Matthew McConaughey to the Alamo Draft House to the same footage. I mean, you can tell there was thought put behind it. There was production value behind it. I mean, just the fact that that Universal went to these these creatives and asked them and got them to talk on screen. You're not just an actor. You're a fan of movies or you wouldn't be in them. You know, what's your favorite cinema? Daniel, you know, and, and hopefully our listeners know as well, if you uh, read our magazine and, and the website, it's a question that we like to ask because it's fascinating just to know about the cinemas that, that people love. And, you know, as with yesterday with Adam Aaron presenting the Marquee Award to cinema employees, I think this year more than ever, it was really emotional and and, and really, really beautiful that cinema employees got the spotlight. And to skip ahead for a bit, later on in the presentation, Lisa Bunnell came on to present Focus's slate, and she was visibly emotional. Yeah, and of course, Lisa Bunnell being a veteran of exhibition as well. Uh, she's an executive that worked many years on the exhibition side, is now on distribution. And it, it was great basically seeing her speak off the cuff in presenting the Focus feature slate, visibly touched by the impact of these videos. So that's a little bit of context of how the universal approach to their presentation worked. They started by thanking the exhibitors attending with a video message directed towards the cinema owners and the cinema workers for opening F9 to fantastic numbers. And then we went to these star-driven introductions of titles where they also introduced their favorite cinemas and cinema employee to speak a little bit about the movie, we talked about Sing 2. Then we have another sequel, the second sequel in this presentation, Halloween Kills. Jamie Lynn Curtis going up, very energetic and heartfelt message. And she introduced the Magic Lantern Cinema in Ketchum, Idaho. Um, I mean, Jamie Lee Curtis, I mentioned the Lionsgate Live um, initiative that took place early in COVID. Of course, Jamie Lee Curtis hosted that. She is, she's been vocal in her support of the cinema industry. You know, I my favorite part about that presentation actually was, uh, was the general manager of the Magic Lantern Cinema saying, oh gosh, she's a regular here, but I don't like horror films. They scare me. I, here's the trailer, but I'm not gonna watch it. It brought humanity to it. It was, it was just really personable and lovely. And the movie looks great. Honestly, I'm going to buy my ticket as soon as tickets are available to be bought. It looks scary. And talking about scary movies, the next movie that came up was a Jason Blunt production, The Black Phone, starring Ethan Hawke. Ethan Hawke went on screen in one of these video presentations and introduced an employee from the Princeton Garden Theater in Princeton, New Jersey. You're a resident horror geek, Rebecca. How do you feel about this Blum title? I feel like Ethan Hawke uh, looked creepy as anything. He said uh, reading the script got him to break his sort of unofficial no bad guys rule. Um, throughout the Universal and Focus presentations, we didn't really get any new title announcements or release dates. They were all things that we'd had on the calendar before. But there were several new trailers exclusive to CinemaCon and seen for the first time by this audience, and this was the first of those. It looked incredibly creepy to me. And then on the other side, next up, we had Lupita Nyong'o to kind of throw it to the uh, Regal Cinema in Atlantic Station in Atlanta to introduce, well, for the staff at that theater to introduce the 355. That's a film that trailers have been out. It's, it's been pushed back several times. What was your reaction to that footage? A female-driven global spy thriller. 
Looks cool. It's a great cast. Lupita Nyong'o, Ban Ban Fing, Diane Kruger, Penelope Cruz. Yeah. And also some dudes. Yeah, and, and also some dudes somewhere in the ensemble cast. It, it looks like an interesting title. I responded to the footage that we saw. It's always hard to, to sort of gauge between the buzz and, and the hype and the marketing materials. But this is something that I think definitely stood out in the presentation. Mm-hmm. And that leads us in to the next title that we had here. More of a romantic comedy, I think. A solid romantic comedy with Jennifer Lopez coming on screen And uh, she went on and said she was so excited to sing on screen for the first time in this movie since Selena. I didn't realize it had been that long. Can you believe it? Just wasted opportunities not to do it. And and I'm glad that we get that we get to have her sing on screen now after all these years. Her her presentation where uh, she kicked it to uh, to an employee from the Bronx Showcase Cinema in in the Bronx Grand Concourse. Of course, uh, Jenny from the block. Honestly, watching her just professionalism and, and the energy that she presented and expressed for this film. I want JLo to direct a movie. I think she should do it. I think she's going to do it one day. And I, I believe in JLo director supremacy. And this is going to be a Valentine's Day release. You have a very interesting supporting cast here of actors that have a lot of traction with Hispanic audiences. This is going to be the, the big screen debut of Maluma, who is a a pop star in Latin America. This might be one of those sleeper hits. Uh, I think there's a lot of potential to this if it's marketed properly. That's that's mm-hmm. a big if. I do wonder that the first proper post-COVID Valentine's Day, I mean, to, we'll have to quiz Sean Robbins on this, but I think that could be a, a, a really good corridor for box office. Yeah, yeah. You, you need to have these different titles come out and we haven't really seen too many movies like this, right? Mm-hmm. So it's, It's good to have something like this on the schedule. And next up, we had Jake Gyllenhaal coming up on the screen and speaking about his next film, Ambulance, which is directed by Michael Bay. And he actually, he mentioned the cinema that he brought up was the AMC Village in New York City. That's a cinema I've been to it several times. I'm Mm -hmm. I'm sure you have as well, right? Yeah. It's like, oh yeah, there it is. (laughs) What did you think of, of this title? With Jake Gyllenhaal, um, you know, remember around the time uh, Nightcrawler came out when Jake Gyllenhaal started to get a little weird and, and just that crazy energy that he has somehow, uh, sometimes now in films? Yeah, we went from like emo Jake Gyllenhaal to like just straight up weird Showman Jake Gyllenhaal. weird Jake Gyllenhaal. Yeah, he had that like boxing movie that Eminem was supposed to star in. Which one was that? Southpaw? Yeah, that was supposed to be Eminem. It ended up being Jake Gyllenhaal. He was good. It was good, but that—that's prime weird Jake Gyllenhaal. And, I'm a big fan of weird Jake Gyllenhaal. And this looks like it is going to follow in that vein of, of weird Jake Gyllenhaal. So again, uh, there's a, uh, there's a lot in this slate that I'm that I'm looking forward to. Yeah, um, I, I really liked of this title. Th- there was a lot of like vibes of Michael Mann's Heat. I know it's a cliche to bring up that title every time we talk about a bank robbing movie, but it's so influential. And there's just a lot of that DNA in the footage that we saw. I'm actually excited to see this one. It's a February release as well mm-hmm. in 2022. Odd timing on the calendar, but from the footage that we saw, it, I'll probably give it a shot in theaters. Yeah. And this was another uh, trailer that we had never seen before, exclusive to the CinemaCon audience. Same for the next film, an animated film called The Bad Guys. Actually, this movie... Uh, not yet done some of the animation you know was in work print it still looked quite fun and that film was introduced by in the heights and hamilton star anthony ramos who voices a character in the film 
That was my favorite moment of the whole presentation because the theater he kicked it to to introduce the film is my theater. It's the it's your local theater. It's my in New local York. theater that I I walk to and I'm 20 minutes away from. So I was like, oh yeah, it's it's the Nighthawk. It's the Nighthawk Prospect Park. So and you know what? Let, let me interrupt you real fast. Do you remember your first byline at box office? It was a profile of the reopening of this theater, the redesign of the theater because it's. It used to be called the uh, Pavilion, and it was famously the the worst, most disgusting movie theater. We in, have to in, say in it. It was in bad shape. But the Nighthawk team, they went in there and really renovated it. It's, it's gorgeous mm -hmm. now. So, yeah, I thought of you when, when I saw that footage. Not only is it your local cinema, also your first byline for this publication. Yeah, I was really excited to see it, and, and I didn't realize that, actually. So thank you. Thank you for reminding me. And next up, we had a film where we actually have seen footage from this movie. It's a movie that's actually coming out really soon. Ben Platt starring in Dear Evan Hansen. A lot of musicals coming out <laughs> over the next uh, over the next few months. I think this might have been a new trailer. I'm not sure. He did kick it to the Landmark Theater in LA. He described, you know, LA born and bred. And as such, you know, you go to the movies. He really came across as, as having a love of that cinema going culture. No, it was, a, it was a great presentation. I, I love the way that Universal was able to bring in the excitement of what this event is through a video presentation. And it's something that look, I always keep on mentioning it this week. I was really curious to see how these studios were going to tackle this challenge. I can tell you, Universal passed in flying colors. Mm -hmm. This was a great model of being able to deliver excitement and messages by integrating the community that's here at this event and really representing what's going on here. Mm -hmm. Wonderful job, I think, from the Universal team. Huge congratulations. And of course, that leads us into their specialty division, Focus Features. We mentioned their head of distribution here, Lisa Bunnell, live in person, introducing the slate. We had four titles. Uh, we had three and then an extra one at the end. Mm -hmm. Let's start with the first one, Last Night in Soho, Edgar Wright. You had a back and forth with Edgar Wright on Twitter very recently. Oh, I'm trying to get him to write something for us because Edgar Wright is famously, vocally, a gigantic supporter of movie theaters. And I mean, Lisa Bennell said every director of the three films whom she asked to do a video introduction immediately said, yes, we're going to do it. Even though the third director hadn't even finished his movie yet. he we will get to what that film is, but it was still in production. So Edgar Wright is a huge proponent of the movie theater business. You know, Scott Pilgrim versus the World was put back into theaters over the last year for its 10th anniversary. And his upcoming film, uh, Last Night in Soho, it has this kind of psychological thriller murder and mystery vibe, which is new for him. Stars Thomas and McKinney and Anya Taylor-Joy, both amazing actresses. Yeah, this is one that I'm that I'm really looking forward to. And it's one that, that has a lot of posters around CinemaCon, so. I think there's a ghost in it. I always say this, I, it's one of the, my few maxims I have. If there's a ghost or a robot in it, it's, it's worth watching. Mm -hmm. It might not be good, but it's worth watching because there's a ghost or a robot. Mm -hmm. Why wouldn't you watch something with those things? Seeing these presentations and seeing these posters, it feels so nice to see the marketing machine rev back up because over the last few months, you know, films have been coming out but the marketing has understandably given concerns about Delta in domestic and international markets. You know, it's been muted, but it is looking like these studios are ramping up those marketing efforts, which I'm really pleased about. And then the, the second film who we, that we had uh, from Focus 
from the legendary Kenneth Branagh directing Belfast, about Belfast, uh, the 60s, a family. Again, this was the first time we had seen this trailer. Uh, Daniel, what was your response to it? First off, when I saw Kenneth Branagh, I was taken aback because the last time I saw him on a cinema screen was in Tenet when he was doing that absurd accent. It was great to see him again in this context and in a with him playing himself. Yeah, I think it's gonna be an interesting title. Again, you need these more grounded films, these dramas that really Focus is known to do and known to pull off. Belfast, I think, is going to be a, a solid option for specialty audiences. Mm-hmm. Something that Lisa Bennell brought up in this presentation, 18 films that Focus features has released to theaters since the start of the pandemic. I honestly didn't realize it had been that many. And it's specialty titles. It's it's adult-driven titles. Those are the hardest to to find right now. Usually we're seeing uh, cross-quadrant movies, maybe some family titles, Mm -hmm. some horror movies, action flicks, right? Focus, 18 specialty titles since the start of the pandemic. This is going to be an additional one. Uh, yeah. Promising Young Woman, one of the major horses in the Oscar race last year, right. and won an Oscar. Yeah. So Belfast, I think, plays into this uh, overall slate and strategy that, that Focus has. And that leads us into, for me, one of the most exciting filmmakers working today. Agreed, agreed. Robert Eggers. I'm a big fan of his first film. His new film that he's currently shooting, The Northman, a Viking drama, What was your impression of the footage we saw that no one has seen? I don't think that I could say what my reaction was because my reaction is just an extremely excited and riveted facial expression. (laughs) Um, And and Lisa Bennell made a specific point to say, they're still in production on this film. They are still making this film. But Robert Eggers was like, yes, I will put together a trailer for the CinemaCon audience. He hasn't finished the movie yet. And you couldn't have told that from the trailer. It looked visually stunning. You know, it's reuniting him with star Anya Taylor-Joy, the witch, Willem Dafoe, who's in Eggers' The Lighthouse. That, for me, was my number one anticipation, uh, you know, anticipated title from this presentation. And then to close up that presentation, we, uh, we actually saw a little bit of footage from the next Downton Abbey movie that has been pushed. It was originally set to open in December, got pushed back to March. Rebecca, what's the title of this movie? That would be uh, Downton Abbey, A New Era. It does look like a new era for the Crawley family because they are uh, going, it looked to be like on a tour out of Britain, on the road. Um, You know, I had a really good time with the first one. Clearly, a lot of people did. It made a lot of money. And, you know, Daniel, as as we've spoken about kind of offline, this is going to be a key title for maybe those, the older, you know, millennial female audience. Right, right, absolutely. And we were ready to pack up and leave. I actually left. I missed this. I had no idea it happened. Rebecca, you stuck around for the credits. What happened at the end? We got a little sneak peek, a a little soup song here uh, for Jurassic Park Dominion. Just some behind-the-scenes footage of the stars talking about about the film. Director Colin Javaro talking about the film. What I'm most excited for, uh, we have Sam Neill uh, and Laura Dern, Jeff Goldblum coming back kind of the reunion of the uh, original Jurassic Park squad and the new Jurassic World squad. I'm excited for that. And the kind of logline elevator pitch, as was described in this video, is what would happen if dinosaurs did exist alongside humans in the world? Would humans be okay? 
Spoiler alert, no. Yeah, I can see that one coming. No. But I'm looking forward to see how that works out in a feature film on the big screen. Rebecca, thank you for joining me here on this news and analysis segment of the Box Office Podcast at CinemaCon. We're now going to jump to our interviews, starting with an interview with Dolby's Jet Harmson. He heads up a big part of the company's cinema division. It's, uh, it's an interesting conversation, so let's jump right into it. And you're in such an interesting position over at Dolby because you're working with content creators directly. You're working with distribution directly and with exhibition as well. So you're really touching all of the different points in a film's life cycle. Part of that is that we've seen an uptick in premium format screenings since cinemas reopened around the world. And of course, as a global company, you've seen that sort of progress from one market to the next. Have you seen that reflected among audiences visiting your Dolby Cinema auditoriums? And what is the format's current presence around the world? So short answer is yes, we've absolutely we've absolutely seen the same uptake and the same progression, and that's both here in the States as well as internationally. I think we'll first catch it as we're definitely seeing growth in the premium experience segment, mm-hmm. right? That seems to be outpacing, I guess, the, the opportunities that are less differentiated. And so for us, that's where we think the industry is going, is to increase differentiation because we believe consumers are very eager to get back, but it's our responsibility as an industry to deliver what they pay for. We, we need to deliver something that is head and shoulders above and beyond what they've been able to get in their home or on mobile for the past 18 months. And we're very well positioned for that. That's what we do with Dolby Atmos and with Dolby Cinema. Dolby Cinema obviously being our ultimate movie-going experience. Mm-hmm. So specific to that, we have over 450 locations that are currently open or committed, spanning 27 global exhibitor partners, and I believe it's 14 countries. Oh. So it really has seen, has continued to see growth and is pretty vibrant. And earlier on, we actually saw for some of the territories that reopened a little earlier, so like Saudi Arabia, Korea, China, et cetera, we've continued adding screens and adding exhibitor partners. So for us, that was a a validation of our hypothesis that, look, moviegoers are going to want a premium experience when they're safe, comfortable, and able to come back to cinemas. So we've been able to see that progression through the pandemic and, and even to this day. And now we have, again, I believe it's 370 films that have either been released or that are committed in Dolby Vision and Dolby Atmos for Dolby Cinema. So the platform has really, you know, I think has really been thriving and we are continuing to see even over the past couple of weeks, like with Free Guy and others, uh, where Dolby cinemas are, are outgrossing a lot of comparative screens on, on a per screen average basis, which again, I think is all validates exactly what you said earlier, Daniel, which is the premium segment sort of outpacing the rest of the industry. Yeah. And like I said, that's really our sweet spot and where we see the, the industry going, frankly. And of course, Dolby Cinema, as you mentioned, isn't the only premium format you have. Dolby Atmos, I think, could be considered a premium format. It could also be considered just a, an elevation of the regular audio experience when, when you go into a cinema. With seeing that Dolby Atmos presence grow over the past couple of years in cinemas around the world, what is that current global footprint of that immersive audio technology And what are some of the releases you guys have coming out in the format to help audiences come back into theaters? You're exactly right. We certainly view Dolby Atmos as a premium experience as well. 
And that is now at over 6,700 auditoriums, again, installed or committed on a global basis. I can't even count the number of exhibitor partners, uh, but I know we're over 100 countries. So we're very well represented across the globe on that front. Um, In terms of upcoming titles, so from a total content volume standpoint, I believe we're now at over 2,000 titles that have been released or committed in Atmos since its inception. So it's pretty impressive just to see that type of scale. And we have over 200 mixing facilities, again, across the globe that allow creatives and folks in post-production to actually create these Atmos experiences and help bring them to life. A couple ones off the top of my head that I know are coming up that I'm personally pretty excited about. So we just, during the Coliseum earlier, there was a extended clip of No Time to Die. So, oh, it was so good. And I heard, yeah. It, that it, car chase sequence in Atmos, I mean, it sounds fantastic, yeah. So that's a pretty exciting one that's coming up. Uh, I think everyone, the whole industry is crossing fingers. It looks like that release date is holding, and I'm yeah. very excited. That I'm hoping that that will hold. What else is coming up soon? Shang-Chi, Legend of the Ten Rings is coming up. Dune is coming up. Top Gun Maverick, of course, which I'm pretty excited about. Yeah, yeah. I was born in the 80s, so like, to me, that's, that's, a, that's like a heartstring. That's a heartstring one that I can't wait to go and see. Matrix 4, I believe, is another MSL coming out. So really, you know, there's a really strong slate of content that's coming up. And, and I think what we're starting to see that's really interesting, and this kind of mentions like bringing the Scott Pilgrim piece mm-hmm. back into it, is it's covering a lot of different genres, if you will, within film. It's right. no longer just just action. It's it's covering drama. You know, A Quiet Place, which came out a while ago, was great and just had a really unique usage of Atmos as part of its storytelling. Right. So we're really seeing the technology being used for all different forms of, of film and different types of content. Well, I went to a Dolby Cinema screen here in the U.S. at, at an AMC to watch Old from M. Night Shyamalan. And the Atmos there, for me, for personally, I think has been my personally favorite use of Atmos because you could really feel the spatial uh, scenario, you know, in this kind of quote-unquote close set that you have in that title. It's a lot of fun seeing how creatives use sort of the tools that we give them. So I always, the best analogy I can provide is, is it's our responsibility to come up with the innovations that provide a broader palette for the creatives, right? Mm-hmm. So I think of it as they had an easel and they only had five colors. Well, now we want to give them an easel that has 100 colors, and as you can imagine, how people choose to use that palette is totally different, right? Some use a hundred of the same, you know, various shades of blue to tell a really nuanced and subtle picture. And some like to use a whole bunch of different colors and some, you know, may be more limited in their palette choices. And so for us, it's again, how it's used in different pieces of content is really exciting to see. And, and I think that's, that's what we love is seeing how the creatives get excited by it how it can help the distribution business and, and how it can help our, our exhibition partners. And I think that that leads to my next question. For me, being in the pandemic in my one-bedroom apartment in New York City <laughs> with my wife, it hasn't been easy. We have one TV. It's in the living room. I know you guys have home entertainment products. If I install them, my neighbors will kick me out of my apartment. <laughs> There's no way I'll be able to stay. So I've been dealing with you know my rinky-dink built-in TV audio for a year and a half. Going back to the movies has been fantastic once you get that cinema sound, once you get that big screen. Right now, with the situation that exhibitors are going through, what role do you think tech innovations can play to, to really help exhibitors out of this crisis? It's a great question. And I think first and foremost, from a Dolby perspective, we are extremely committed and extremely caring about the, the big screen experience and shared experiences. 
it's a really a nuanced question. So the way I think about it is, from my standpoint, we are we are social beings to begin with, right? I, I don't think uh, any of us enjoy, there's probably some that do, so I don't want to use too broad a brush, but I think the majority of us like engaging and being with other people and whatever the activity is. You know, anyone who I've asked and said, assume the pandemic ends tomorrow, what's the first thing you're going to do? Not one person has said, sit at home and turn on my TV, right? Right. So, and so I give that context because I think it really, what it illustrates is that we kind of actually have a natural tailwind coming up for the mm-hmm. industry, right? People have a built-in desire to get back to movies and to go and re-engage in these group entertainment opportunities. I think our responsibility as a collective industry and, and Dolby as a constituent of that industry is to make sure that we're delivering on, not just delivering, delivering and exceeding their expectations so that when they go back, it's almost a reinvigoration of, now I remember why I love doing this so much and I need to keep going back to it. And part of it is is technical innovation, right? I think uh, what we're doing in Dolby Cinema and with Atmos in terms of immersive audio, high dynamic range imagery, brighter brights, blacker blacks, more colors, all of that helps the movie go or brings them closer to the story and just delivers an overall experiential impact that, you know, from my standpoint, can't be had anywhere else. So that's, you know, from a technical standpoint, and even though we've made a lot of progress on those fronts, it's still... You know, if you think about how long it took for 5.1 to become fairly right. ubiquitous, et cetera, yeah. we're still fairly early in this in this development cycle. So I think those are really unique technical innovations. At the same time, I think there's going to be, for lack of a better description, some you know, business innovations. Uh, there's obviously been a lot going on around uh, windowing and, and is it going to remain exclusive? Is it not? Is it going to shrink? And we'll all find out where where it falls, my personal opinion, and it's nothing more than that, it's nothing that I can substantiate, is that I think exclusive windows will persist, but it's likely they're going to get shorter, and I'm mm-hmm. sure distribution is going to want to have, you know, options and flexibility. And I actually view that as an opportunity for, again, as an industry and for exhibitors to think about what are alternative content forms and other genres that we can start bringing in, whether it's music or esports or other gaming events or even episodic. Like, I think about how awesome would it have been if we had you know, a week exclusive of The Mandalorian or pick something like that. Just a great, amazing piece of content that I absolutely think would have translated incredibly well to the big screen experience. So I think continuing to push the boundaries of of making the experience better, more visceral and and more deeply engaging the consumer is a better direction. Allowing exhibitors to have flexibility about how they program their spaces and same with distribution. Because ultimately, I think people want to go out and have an out-of-home experience we just got to make sure that we deliver it and we deliver it earnestly. Jed, thank you so much for joining us today. Really appreciate your insights. We look forward to hearing more from Dolby and your innovations in the coming weeks and months. Of course. Thank you again. Great to see you. Thank you for having me. And now moving on to our next interview, a recording from that Monday afternoon executive roundtable panel here at CinemaCon. Thank you so much to the CinemaCon team for making this available to us. So without any further interruptions, please enjoy this exclusive roundtable presentation directly from CinemaCon 2021. And we'll see you again tomorrow for the final episode of the Box Office Podcast from CinemaCon. Thank you, everyone, for being here. I'm really quite impressed for the fact that we have a little bit of a lower international attendance There's more people here today than there were two years ago at the international panel. So bravo. Thank you, everyone. 
for being here. I'm very honored. I'm going to just preface this by saying, please forgive me if I seem a little bit nervous. This is the first thing I've done live with a physical audience since that thing in CinemaCon in April of 2019. And folks on my panel and some of the rest of you who know me in the audience know that uh, for the past two years, my only live physical audience has been my dogs and my cat and my donkey and my sheep. So <laughs> this is quite different. If anybody feels like barking or braying or meowing during the panel, if I seem a little nervous, that would put me at ease. In any case, it has been a long time since we've been here and a lot has changed. When we were here in April of 2019, we were about a quarter of the way through what would go on to become a record year at the global box office with over $42 billion. 30 billion of that coming from international, also a record. And then 2020 hit and the industry was plunged into an unprecedented state of chaos and limbo. Everybody had to be nimble, had to pivot, had to learn, and had to make difficult decisions. Things are getting better, we're not out of it yet, but I do have some figures that I wanted to just share. Because one thing that's undeniable throughout all of this, even prior to the pandemic, is the strength and importance of international box office. In 2019, it represented 73% of the global total. In 2020, which was a dismal year, fair enough, it represented 82%. And through the year to date, this year, based on figures from Comscore reported territories, global box office is currently at 10.15 billion, with 8.2 billion of that from international, repping a little bit, just under 81%. A lot of that skews to China, fair enough, but we can't forget other important mature markets in Europe and emerging markets in Asia, mature markets like Japan, which have thrown off some great hits recently. So I'm not going to keep talking. <laughs> I'm going to let these experts help me out about some of the challenges that we are now facing, which obviously include things like streaming and piracy and the Windows situation, the need for films that encourage people out of their homes, and a lot more. So let's get on with unpacking all of that. I'm going to go in order of how we are listed on the schedule. So I'd like to ask Mookie, could you come up? <laughs> Mookie Greidinger, CEO of Cineworld Group. Thank you. So, yeah, we're already like. And next, Veronica Kwan Vandenberg from Universal, president of international distribution at Universal. Who's next? Alejandro Ramirez Magana, CEO of Sinopolis, Latin America's largest exhibitor. And Mark Vian, who is president of international theatrical distribution at Paramount. to get your titles correct. I know all of you so well, but <laughs> it's hard to keep track of all of that. So I wanted to just start by diving right in. It's been a rough time for everybody, and there's a lot of hand-wringing going on, but I don't think anybody sitting here is really too terrified of the demise of the theatrical business or doesn't believe that it will survive. Am I right? Okay. <laughs> and especially also with so much growth potential still out there so many markets that still have room to grow. But what I wondered for my exhibitors here, what is the current concern level over the potential of increased dynamic windowing as studio platforms continue to expand globally? I think in general, we are after the, let's say the lowest point. We know there are different variants that are coming and going and uh, there will be probably more. 
But I think we are at the stage now that we should learn to live with COVID, not to run away from COVID. And I think altogether, if we look at the numbers, and I think we have a very good example just from the last weekend, and that we saw a movie which is holding very well when it gets a window. I think that we should be optimistic looking at the lineup which is coming from the studios in the coming months. And altogether, things will settle. And I'm very optimistic about the future of this industry and the theatrical business in particular. Yeah, yeah just briefly, I just want to echo what uh, Muki said. I think a, a prerequisite for people to go back to cinemas is uh, for them to feel safe and that their loved ones are safe. So uh, as we finish this third wave and hopefully, you know, with vaccination and some experts predict that it will become an endemic thing, you know, like an illness, like a seasonal flu, and we'll need to get, you know, boosters once a year or X number of months. I think people will definitely come back. I think uh, we did a survey in Mexico and one of the top things that people said that they missed during the pandemic is going to the movies. So, and we've seen it that when the contagion rates go down, people come back to the movies in big numbers. And I think, you know, the windowing experimentation that we've seen, you know, throughout this period, which is understandable given the unpredictability of the whole pandemic, I think a lot of, you know, a lot of lessons have been learned during this period that we can, I'm sure, will come out in, in this discussion, which I think I still firmly believe that an ex a window of exclusivity of some period for a film in cinemas, I think that's the model to maximize the return for a film. I think a lot of experimentation has been going on and may continue, but I think uh, a lot of lessons are there and uh, I think we can talk about them, you know, that have to do with, you know, even things like piracy. Sure. I think you said you had some interesting figures out of Mexico on piracy. I mean, you guys, both of your studios have released giant theatrical-only films in the last couple of months between F9 and Quiet Place 2. And there's also been some dynamic windowing domestically. And one of those issues that comes up with that is piracy, because as soon as you get something on a streaming, high-quality streaming platform, then there's a pristine copy out there. Mookie, we've talked about that before as well. What has been the studio experience on that? Have you seen an impact from that? Well, in, in terms of F9, we took a, a release strategy that was tailored to each market depending on COVID recovery, and that was really important, you know, in terms of maximizing the box office grosses internationally, which is why we had multiple territories go out weeks before domestic. So based on that, it was really important to protect the movie against piracy as best as we could, and we put additional measures into place in each of those markets to make sure that we were maximizing the film theatrically and protecting it as much as we could. At the end of the day, we were really pleased to see that the piracy levels were relatively low. Is that partly also because it wasn't, you know, you're still recording something in a cinema if you're pirating it at that point? That's right. Yeah. Okay. And Mark, I guess the same thing. Yeah, with quiet I, mean, I, would, I, I you know, certainly agree with Veronica in terms of this. And each and every market is going to have a different sort of window. Every market plays very different for how long that they normally stay in theaters. How do they open? So I think, you know, we're going to continue to see whichever window we do set here in the future, it will be a window that's going to be appropriate for that marketplace. And then when it comes to the piracy, yes, yeah, certainly, you know, we saw piracy and listen, we still have eight markets to release on a quiet place because those markets are still not open. So certainly piracy will affect those types of markets. But yeah, because it was not on a streamer, we obviously had a different type of quality of piracy on that. So speaking to that, Alejandro, do you want to maybe talk a little bit about what you... Sure. It's uh, one very influential journalist in Mexico, uh, Gabi Mesa. 
She has about 220,000 followers on Twitter. She's a film journalist and an influencer. And she just asked a very simple question. How did you watch Black Widow? And 28% said, I watched it in a movie theater. 13% said, I watched it on Disney+. Plus. 32% said, I did not watch it. And 27% said, I watched it, pirated it. If you only take the numbers, if you exclude the people that did not see it, it means that 40% of people that saw it, saw it pirated. And that's a lower bound because people are usually reluctant to reveal that they saw it pirated. And yet, and it's 25,113 respondents. So it's a big survey, you know, 20, over 25,000 people. So that gives you a clue of how bad piracy is in emerging markets when you have day and date releases, because now you have a pristine copy available on minute one and in all available languages. You know, in the past, and this is something we were talking with Muki over lunch, you know, they had to do camcording to get the languages of each country. Now they get all the languages in one go and in a pristine format. So evidently, you know, the pirates are making a lot of money with these day and date releases. And that's something that is neither good for exhibition nor for the studios. I mean, everybody loses in that case. So throughout this, how has the nature of your relationship between distribution and exhibition evolved or changed? We've talked about this a little bit in the past. Has the pandemic created new opportunities? We've definitely found a lot of opportunities to be in greater partnership throughout the pandemic. You know, it's been a difficult time for everybody in the industry, and we feel that communication during this time has been absolutely key to all of our success. And we've worked together hand-in-hand hand in, in the UK on a PVOD deal and different things that we've been discussing throughout the business. How do you feel about your relationship with the studios right now? I think there's, everybody understands the relations between exhibition and studios is a partnership. You know, at the end of the day, both sides need one another. We're working together and there need to be the balance should be found. And I will go back for one minute to the piracy just to conclude what Alejandro was saying. You know, and we were all debating between ourselves and the studios, I think, is how many people we will lose to the home entertainment when they go day and date. But nobody really imagined that the big losers here are both of us because we lose to the pirates. Because we were saying, okay, we will lose 20% of the attendance, 30% of the attendance, in favor of Disney Plus or Paramount Plus or whatever. But this is not the case. You know, the, the pirated is a loss for the studio and for us. And this is going into numbers because of the high quality. And my guys have showed me that the minute Disney Plus shows a movie in the US, after two hours, there is a full pirated copy in China. Piracy have no borders. It doesn't matter where Disney Plus operates. So I think the piracy is the thing that will really turn the thing in a way that we will have a window, not as long as it was, but together with the studios, as Veronica said, we are discussing, we are having, and we are also testing. It's a new reality, but I think we are getting there, and we will have the new normal relatively soon, maybe early 2022, that will be similar between the studios and the exhibitors, because you can't give a different exhibitor a different window in the same country, and you can't give the studios, one studio with 10 days and the other studio with 40. So it needs to be something that will be the new normal, and I think it's going to happen soon. Do you, how do you feel about that, about the partnership between exhibition and distribution in um, the studios? You know, listen, everyone's backs are against the wall right now, and this is a time when you could, in theory, you know, everyone could be fighting for themselves. But I think the important thing is, as Mookie said, it, it is a partnership. And 
we've had really tough conversations about some of the issues going on, but we've all kind of come and met in the middle and we're trying things that we haven't done before. And having that happen during a pandemic is, I think it's just an amazing sign that shows what kind of partnerships we really do have, because we're all fighting for the same thing. We want to get people back in cinemas. And that's what we're doing. And we're understanding each other. We're having those conversations and finding a way to move forward. Something actually slightly positive to have come out of this whole experience. If you could say there's a right. positive out of this, sure. <laughs> and Alejandro? Well, no, I, I agree, you know, with uh, my fellow panelists have said, I think at the beginning of the pandemic, we were all saying, uh, let's, we'll get through this together. We didn't know how long this would be. So at the beginning, I think we were communicating constantly and saying, you know, we're going to move, shifted a date and everything. As this started becoming longer and longer, then we started hearing of movies going to streaming platforms, mm -hmm. films that were being sold. And of course, it's very disappointing for exhibitors. But on the other hand, it's understandable because everybody's trying to survive in this environment. It's very difficult. So um, we're glad that of the 25 you know, large titles that we had scheduled for 2020, only six got sold to streamers and most were kept you know, for 2021. Few have moved you know, to 2022, but there's been a dialogue, you know, like everyone else said. You know, there's been a dialogue to try to you know, work things out and to try to you know, survive and learn together, but also cooperate in this very difficult environment. Yeah, it sort of feels like at the beginning, things were very tense and everybody was so scared and there was a lot of rhetoric and whatnot. And then ultimately you just say, hell, this is gonna continue. We have to, we have to work together. So I want to talk with you guys, this is really for everybody, but in terms of dating, because international, it's become, particularly recently with what's happened in Australia, and opening and closing and some of the other markets, feels like whack-a-mole to a degree where, you know, on Monday a market is open and you have a movie coming out on Friday, but on Wednesday that market shuts, or part of it closes down, or, you know, 65% of it closes down. We've so, all experienced it. <laughs> yeah. So, and same for exhibition. I mean, how are you dealing with dating going forward? What is the sort of, is it an hourly basis? Is it a daily basis? You know, how are you kind of projecting? And how are you working with the individual markets? Because every market is different, so. Yeah, it literally is on an hourly basis. I mean, <laughs> It's hugely challenging for all the teams around the world. You know, we have to continue to be nimble and look at every single situation and assess each development market by market. And I think one of the big things that's been really important to us is the partnership with our agencies to make sure that, you know, we have a lot of flexibility there that we can lift and shift campaigns if we need to. Working very closely and hand in hand with domestic to make sure that we have some sort of a global strategy that makes sense. And again, just going back to the F9 discussion, that was a huge discussion that went on studio-wide in terms of, does this make sense to go out five weeks before domestic, you know, in a market like China and Russia, for example? And at the end of the day, also working very closely with the filmmakers and then hand-in-hand -hand with exhibition. But it's been very challenging, and we've learned a lot in the process. Can you give us an example? <laughs> well, for one thing, a go-no-go -no -go date is very important. And once you have that go-no-go -no -go date, you know, making sure that you have the right process in place, the right people in place, again, the agency partnership, making sure that we have a lot of support there and flexibility in the campaigns that we've been creating. You know, we've been working more and more towards digital. I think everybody has talked about this, but there's tremendous, there's more flexibility there than the traditional media that you would spend. And for the exhibitors, I mean, in terms of when a market just shuts down or they're you know, partial closures or the movies have come off the schedule in short window. How has that been for you guys to deal with? 
Look, I think many of the people that are sitting here know how difficult it is. Because on one hand, we have the issue from the studio side, which is the lineup of the movies, the movies are moving. We, for example, as Cineworld Group, took the decision when Bond was postponed last October to close our cinemas again. Some of our competition decided not to close, you know, and everybody has his own elements of when you take the decision and what you do. But one of the things that for the international companies like us, that we operate in 10 countries, and Alejandro will also say this, you know, we have different rules from every government. The one prime minister thinks the best thing is that kids will not be allowed to the movies. The other one thinks we need to keep five seats between one transaction to another. The third one thinks we should not sell popcorn. You know, it's crazy. And you are sitting and you're dealing on a daily basis with the territories. Now it's quite down a little bit, and now we are almost with no restrictions in most of the countries, so it's good. But at the peak, it was a disaster because it was everyday changes, you know. So if we not allowed to sell popcorn, do we close the cinemas or do we open them? We're not doing this and not doing that. It was really very, very frustrating, the studios on one side. But altogether, things are now relaxing. I think that almost no restrictions. There will be coming now a wave that we will need to show a proof of vaccination, probably in many of the countries, which at the beginning will create some chaos. I'm saying this from the experience we have already in Israel. But at the end of the day, it's not a bad thing. And it will create some stability to the situation. And as I said earlier, you know, how to live with the COVID is something that we will need to learn how to do. Talking about the changing of the schedules and the jockeying around and all of that, from a studio standpoint... I guess from everybody's standpoint, but how difficult has it been to kind of maintain momentum? Because we've had so many stops and starts. And are you seeing, because I don't want to continually talk about the past, but are you seeing there is a light at the end of the tunnel, I suppose. But have you learned, what sort of lessons have you learned from this, from this stop and go? And how much does that affect what you're looking at, say, two years down the road? The one thing is dating. Thankfully, it's not stressful any longer. (laughs) Listen, I think Veronica used the perfect word. You have to be nimble. That's the buzzword. You have to be so nimble in everything that you do because every single week it is changing. And depending on the mixture of markets that are either open or closed or closed for a few weeks, you have to make decisions on that far enough out before you hit that go, no-go date so you can, you know, start your campaign and to make sure that you're giving the movie everything that it deserves. You know, is there anything to learn? There's not because you're constantly evaluating on a weekly basis. You're seeing the updates of whatever country is open or closed and you just have to roll with that and then figure your strategy out. And then, you know, let's say you have three weeks before you really have to make a decision. In that three weeks, so much will have changed from the three weeks out that you just have to continue to assess it on a weekly basis. And that is the best thing you can possibly do. Plus, you're looking at what other movies are releasing during that time. Could you have the marketplace to yourself? Do you take that risk? So you're constantly looking at those aspects in order to make the best decision. Okay. I would just add to that, you know, I mean, it's a long game. You know, we're releasing movies over many, many months and sometimes over the course of the year, and we just have to be patient and see what makes sense market by market, but it really is a long game. And what has been the, with the, you know, market by market and whatnot, in terms of, right now we have Southeast Asia, except for Singapore, closed. I mean, what kind of impact has that been for you guys? 
Well, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's an extremely unfortunate situation. The Southeast Asian markets have been some of the worst hit by COVID. And, you know, they're some of the strongest emerging markets, you know, in the past, especially right. countries like Indonesia and Malaysia and so on, or the Philippines. And there are also markets that have been, in terms of their cultures, they have been very strong movie-going cultures, you know. So it's very hard to predict what's going to happen over time. You know, it's going to take a while for them to come back. But I do believe, as we've seen in other countries, when people come out of lockdown and they love going to movies, they will come back, you know, and these markets will recover. Well, I was going to say, specifically with Indonesia, which was really, really growing and has such a massive population to serve, how much of a setback for those markets that were emerging, that were in, like, really coming along and then had to be shut down, do you expect them to get right back up and going? I don't think anybody gets right back up and going again <laughs> <laughs> these days. You know, it will, it will definitely take time. But I do believe they will come back. Yeah, I can add something on here. Salvation, yeah. Southeast Asia. For instance, in the first opening back in September of last year, of, our, of the 19 markets in which we're present, India made the fastest recovery. So India had the highest productivity of all the 19 markets, and it was doing very well. And then, of course, the Delta variant arose in India. So it was the first country to shut down all over again in April, and we just opened again in August. So we were shut down from April to August. But even in just the two weeks that we've been opened, again, the recovery has been very, very quick. And again, India is on top of our charts in terms of productivity per screen. So then the epicenter of the pandemic moved to Southeast Asia, and we have operations in Indonesia. And of course, Indonesia had a lower recovery or, or a not, not such a fast recovery as India, but they had also they were on the way of recovery and then everything is shut down. So of all the 19 markets in which we're in, we're open, reopened back in 18 and only Indonesia is fully closed. But in some of these markets, we were closed for 18 months in a row, like Peru only opened two weeks ago and we closed in March of last year. So it was from March of 2020 to August of 2021, and yet we cannot sell food and beverage in Peru. So we hesitated whether we open or not, because we were doing in some countries where we do, we don't call it a, a break-even analysis, but a loss-even analysis. How do you lose less, open or close? Because you're going to lose in both you know, instances, but it's just how do you minimize you know, burning cash? And of all the you know, regulations as, that Muki was alluding to, because even within a country you have wide diversity of regulations according to each state and municipality. But the craziest that somebody shared, some of our Japanese colleague exhibitors shared in a GCF call a few months ago is in Japan they outlaw or they forbade selling a large popcorn, not small and medium, but large. And I'm like, this is absurd. Why large? Why? Oh, because people take longer to eat a large popcorn. So they analyze that small and medium were okay, <laughs> but large popcorn is not okay. <laughs> so just to give you an idea of the creativity of regulators. Right. <laughs> so let's talk about something slightly more positive. What is driving people back to the movies? I mean, is it in an overall sense, is it more weighted to the vaccination rates? Is it more weighted to the product? Is it, I mean, how are you seeing it right now? I would say that the first thing that drives them back to the cinema is because they miss the cinema. And we see it clearly when people are coming to the movies, you know, it's, safety is very important. And we made a huge effort to keep the cinema safe and really sterilized and do whatever we could do from our side. But the people, first of all, came back and said they are happy to be back because they missed the experience of going to the movies. And this should be maybe the most encouraging fact for us because it shows that this business is here to stay. And the other things, 
of course, are having an influence. And someone many, many years ago said to the exhibitors, you are as good as your next movie. The product, of course, drives a lot of the thing. And uh, the minute we have the movies, I think we showed already good results. And we are showing better and better results. And the minute things will stabilize, that I said before, people will be. But people missed the cinema. They want the experience. We talked about it so many times, about the difference of experiencing a movie in the cinema and outside of the cinema. There are surveys today that are showing, for example, and there's a famous one that is moving around the industry, about Wonder Woman 2 that was surveyed. And the amount of people that really enjoy the movies from the people that saw it in the cinemas is double than the amount of people that enjoyed it when they saw it at home. So it's a different experience. It's something else. It's also the fact that you don't see the movie alone. Alone means five families alone. If you see a movie, a big comedy or a big action movie with two or three hundred people around you, it's a different experience altogether. And this should be encouraging for all of us. And this keep us being optimistic. What kinds of movies are working, do you find, internationally right now? Is it varying region to region? I'll tell you what's working in Latin America. In Mexico and other Latin American countries, for instance, horror is working very well. The Conjuring 3, Mexico was the number one market outside of the U.S. And it did $17 million box office versus $21 million of the previous Conjuring. So almost, I mean, very close. Then A Quiet Place 2, did very well, $6.7 million of box office in Mexico, compared to $7.7 million of the previous one. The Unholy did very well, above $6 million too. And The Purge, also Forever Purge, worked very well. And of course, the big action blockbusters, I mean, Fast 9 and uh, Godzilla vs. Kong are number one and two film in the entire Latin American region, in every single market. And the films that have suffered a little bit more are more adult content and family content because you know what horror and the action films have in common is that they appeal to a demographic of 18 to 25 year olds which are the most adventurous you know they don't feel a lot of fear about you know not being vaccinated yet but family films and, and more adult films have suffered more we saw some glimmers of success with a few family films like Cruella which is not only families like all audiences but Cruella did well Space Jam did okay and now I was just telling, we were talking with Paw Patrol, did very well this last weekend. It was the number Bring one the film. on. Yes. <laughs> so it was the number one film in Mexico this weekend. Right, of course. And Paw Patrol, we were talking about this too. It was kind of funny because France has been having this issue with the health pass. And, you know, you have to either show a negative test or that you've been vaccinated. And yet you guys were number one on your opening weekend, even taking out a local movie in its second weekend that was anticipated to be a huge film. So is part of that, are kids, is that because it's skewing to younger kids who don't have to be vaccinated and they're going with older people who are vaccinated? Yeah, I mean, I mean that is part of it, obviously. I think, listen, in France with the health pass, you know, the first two weeks of the health pass were a little bit shaky. You know, yeah. the audiences were not returning really right. in the numbers that you thought. But I think that they've gotten used to it and they're such a, I mean, they're honestly one of the best cinema going audiences in the world and they wanted to, you know, really come back. So it, it made more people get vaccinated, which was part of the goal, you know, from the government. You know, I think it's really starting to pay off. But um, yeah, there's um, Paw Patrol certainly has really played great for that young family. And, you know, they don't have to have the vaccine yet or they can't get it yet. And I think parents felt 
either they're being so pestered at home to get out and go to the movie that they said, yes, well, let's just go. Or, you know, they're feeling comfortable enough because as we all know, there haven't been cases reported coming out of a cinema. And I think that that's a really strong message that is, I think, resonates around each and every single market. So I, I would say that that's really, um, you know, helped contribute to Paw Patrol being a, a nice success for the families. What have you been seeing working internationally? Definitely branded event movies, you know, are working internationally, as is usually the case, but especially now. We've certainly had great success with Fast 9, and, and we were really confident again also going into what uh, Alandra is saying about teens and, and 18 to 25-year-olds. It's the right audience, the right kind of movie. We felt that you needed to have the right kind of franchise-branded movie to bring moviegoers back. Movie's done 525 million and continues to roll out internationally, so we feel really good about that. But certainly branded event movies, you know, I've talked a little bit about some of the others. You know, in Latin America, we also have Croods and Boss Baby internationally. And going back to the health pass, you know, again, less affected by the health pass because in France in particular, under 18-year-olds do not need to show a health pass. So it's been helpful on that front too. What I want to talk about also is going forward because what is the messaging? Mark, you brought up a good point about no COVID cases having come from the cinemas. But... Going forward, the messaging to really resuscitate this business, I mean, what do each of you believe that that is, and how can exhibition sort of enhance the experience and eventize the experience for audiences? Because that's sort of a perennial question, but I think becomes more important at this point. I think the task for exhibition remains very similar to where it was before pandemic. The first and foremost, we need to deliver good cinemas and good experience. And there's nothing that can compensate if someone goes to the movies and the picture is dark, the sound is not good, cinema is dirty, or equipment is broken. So our part, we are not making the movies. Our part is really to deliver the experience, good service, and all the things. This, nothing has changed. Maybe it became even more difficult now because we need also to deal with masks, and we need to deal with sanitary, and all the other things. But in general... This is what we need to do. At the other hand, we need also to be open to additional products. Uh, I agree with everything that all my fellows here said with regards to the product, but we see also now the importance, because we are in the international panel here, of the local product in the other countries. And no one can really describe the difference when you have suddenly a strong Polish movie or a strong Romanian movie and all this. This is not competing with the studio movies. These are in addition that help us to keep the business. And any support and anything that can be done, not all the countries can produce local product. Countries that can do it, it's becoming very, very important. It also helps the studios because that local product, if it's a success, helps all, you know, rising tide lifts all boats and it gives the studios more exposure people just going through the lobbies and seeing the trailers and all of that kind of stuff. Veronica, when you see a Demon Slayer do what it did in Japan, I mean, is that encouraging to you? Absolutely. I mean, it gives us all hope, you know, that a marketplace can rebound and and rebound to pre-pandemic levels and then some. Same thing, even for exhibition. I mean, if you're not, you know, like in a market like Korea, even things that we started to see last summer with Peninsula and despite what they're doing right now, um, (laughs) how is that for you, you know, kind of looked at from afar? Well, actually, we've uh, also experimented and we've been uh, doing that from before the pandemic with uh, a lot of alternative content that has become 
very important in some months in which content has been very low. Mm. And talking about Korea, actually our best alternative content in the first opening uh, last year was K-pop, you know, the BTS concert. Mm. It beat many uh, movies for several weeks. And then uh, also uh, Blackpink, which is another K-pop. And uh, also we've uh, programmed anime films like Demon Slayer as alternative content, because even though it's a movie, it's a, it's a film, it's, it's a niche product in Latin America. So I think alternative content has become even more relevant than before because it helps you through the dry periods. Right, and uh, yes, and going back to what uh, Muki was saying, you know, I think the things that are you know, driving people back, yes, it's the experience. So we need to remind them why you know, cinema is so much better than watching it at home, that the sense of immersion and the deep emotional connection that they get watching a film in the big screen it's completely different than from watching it in an iPad or, or on TV at home. And about two, I, I also think we need to convey better the message that cinemas are safe places. You know, that it's one of the safest places of out-of-home entertainment. I think cinemas is the safest. You know, safer than a restaurant, safer than, than a cafe, safer than, you know, a concert or a club or a sporting event. So if you want to get out of your home... And be safe. You know, cinema is one of the safest or probably the safest by the mere factor that people are in silence and all watching in the same direction. And, you know, in many countries, there's still in all most of our markets still social distancing. I don't think we've been able to convey that and that we have high air volumes and a lot of, you know, circulation, a lot of injection from outside air. So the air quality is much better than in a restaurant. And, you know, in a restaurant, when people speak, they issue 14 times more saliva particles in a restaurant than in a cinema or in an activity that is in silence. And yet people, oh, oh, because there's a study that I'm assuming people know, but of course no, we were commented in the Global Cinema Federation advisory board meeting a few months ago, and we made it available for whomever is interested in it. It's a study by the International Air Quality and Health Institute in Brisbane University in Australia by Dr. Moravska. And what she found is that an activity that is conducted in silence, but with physical activity, like in a gym, you issue seven more times saliva particles than an activity that is in silence and without physical activity. An activity that is without physical activity, but where people talk, like in a restaurant or a cafe, people issue 14 times more saliva particles. And an activity where people actually yell, sing, or shout, like a concert or a club, or a sporting event, they issue 90 times more saliva particles than a, an activity that is conducted in silence and without physical activity. So through that, we know that going to the cinemas is the safest out-of-home entertainment, yet we haven't been able to convey it effectively. And I think that's something that we all, as exhibitors worldwide, need to do better. Did they study with the difference between a small popcorn and an extra no. large popcorn? <laughs> Not yet. That's the next one. <laughs> Okay, sorry, I didn't mean to be cheeky, but I just couldn't resist. So in terms of what you guys are looking for from one another and what can exhibition do for the studios or for distribution, what can you guys do for them going forward? I mean, in terms of, you know, does exhibition need to get more involved in marketing? You know, how does that sort of work? We have a, a huge diverse lineup of movies coming up and it's really important to us to release them theatrically and we're in a time where we need to do as much communicating as we can out in the marketplace, you know, to consumers. We have the opportunity to work together on campaigns to bring moviegoers back. These have been successful in the past when we've been dealing with piracy and, and markets being affected and 
at different points in time, and now more than ever, it's an opportunity for us to work together and do those kinds of things. I also think, you know, as I was saying before, you know, our partnership, I think, has really, really grown. We've become much closer, and I think what Exhibition is offering to distribution right now, when it's, you know, talking straight to their loyalty club members, they're taking every extra step to try to make sure that the communication of whatever movie is releasing that weekend is front and center, and they have done an amazing job at that, which obviously on top of our marketing campaign, along with theirs, that is what, how we're really pushing audiences to get back into the theaters right now. But it is that partnership, again, that is more solidified, and we're working closer and closer together. And we need it right now. This is what we need for us to be doing. And you've got loyalty programs. So how have you seen the, the uptake internationally, sort of in the UK and whatnot, since, the, since everybody's come back? I think one of our strongest tools are the loyalty programs, and we have two levels. One is what we call the regular, the points one, that you also register, but we get the data, and this is very important, not only for us, but also for the studios. And the second level is what we call the unlimited offer, in various places, it's not only us doing it, but it's also very, very important. And this is really a possibility to allow people that love the movies and want to go to see many movies to get it in a way which is discounted a bit, but not discounting the people that are going only once in three months or whatever. So it has a sense in it, but it's a great marketing tool. And I agree with uh, Veronica and I agree with Mark. You know, it, the goal is the same. We need to have footfall inside the cinema. And we should work and do it together. And today, the social media gives us a lot of new direction. Almost every week, there are new things and new ways to reach the audience, which are not only the classic TV spot or the ad in the paper, which do not almost exist anymore in all the other things. So we should work together and really work in the international, I think what is very important, and we talk to Veronica, we talk to Mark from time to time, is also the U.S. movies, which are driving this business, having most of their PR from talent point of view done in the U.S. It's very easy to get a movie star into NBC or CBS or Good Morning America or whatever. Much more difficult to get these guys to appear on the French TV or even England. I'm not talking about small countries. But it is very, very important for us. The world is becoming smaller on one hand, and on the other hand, the international business is more than 75% now, I think, of the business. So it is crucial, really, to have this work together about how we promote and how we market the movies. And that's something that obviously couldn't be done in the last year and a half because nobody could, I mean, you know, the big junkets couldn't travel and whatnot. But it's true that when we used to pre-pandemic, when we would, you know, I'd speak to you guys before a weekend, you know, release and say, you know, where's the talent been? Is that a plan going forward to get back to that kind of thing? Oh, for sure. That is definitely the top list. As soon as the markets can open, we don't have to quarantine people in these markets. But, you know, certainly during this time, we've been doing from Zoom calls with talent, um, a lot of phoners that we've been doing to try to get at least as much coverage as we possibly can, considering the limitations. But it does make a big impact when somebody goes 100% to a market. 100% it does, yeah. yeah. And it's, listen, and, you know, certainly on the international side, when you're dubbing movies and you're using local talent, you can utilize them in territory. And we don't have to rely on one smaller group of actors to try to service the entire world. You can actually do that market by market. Or you have Tom Cruise who will just go to 82 countries. Or you know, Tom just goes in, around. In three days. <laughs> okay, 
A Quiet Place 2 was one of the most recent or one of the last movies to get into China, to release in China before the summer blackout. Is it a positive sign now that they've started dating Yeah, listen, it's always a positive sign when they start to date movies. You know, certainly Free Guy has now gotten its date, and you're starting to hear rumblings on other pictures getting in. So I believe that that market is going to be opening up, and you're going to see a lot more movies coming in. Okay. We're being very optimistic, and I think we have every reason to be. And, I mean, still the unpredictability of the virus, you know, we don't know. But I think hopefully we've come to a point where we've, you know, sort of passed a cap what, however, might give you pause in the future, other than, you know, an 18th wave kind of thing? I mean, really, that's what it is at the end of the day, right? You know, it's, it's the unknown, the uncertainty that something else could happen. But we do feel that as vaccinations increase, market restrictions decrease, consumer confidence rises, we should be in a great place, you know, down the road. How long that will take, market by market, will really vary in each territory. I am really hopeful. We just released Fast 9 in Japan, and even despite rising COVID, you know, and concerns in the marketplace, the movie did extremely well. It's going to be our third highest market internationally, globally, actually, behind domestic and China. So it's great to see that happen, and we feel very optimistic about the future. Mookie, what are you concerned about in the future the most? I think we need to get into a regular phase, you know, and I will not say, you know, I'm concerned because after the last... 24 months, I would say, if somebody says he's not concerned, it would sound relatively stupid, you know. And if you told me two years ago that this is what is about to happen, you know, I would tell you that can't happen, something like this. So we need to be concerned, we need to think ahead, but I think we are on the positive direction, and we are now on the way to come back, to learn, to live with it. You know, someone mentioned to me yesterday in a a talk, you know, there was a huge Spanish flu that was pandemic in 1918. 50 million people died in this pandemic only in Europe. Most of them were in Europe. And the world went through with no vaccination and with no medical that we have today, you know. We have huge science behind us. The vaccination is there. Medicine probably will be found at a certain stage. So we need to be optimistic. Concerns, we need to think about everything that can happen. We need to be ready. Don't tell only us, you know, it's also our banks, our lenders, our landlords, you know, we have a huge list behind us. But in general, I think we need to be optimistic to look at the last quarter of the year, great product is coming, and 2022 looks great. I think that I'm less concerned today than I was six months ago. For sure. (laughs) And you guys? Anything other than what your colleagues said? No, I mean, said? it is. It is it's, it's, listen, with the, the, on the positive, with the vaccination rates really quick, especially internationally, quickly they're rising, which is a great sign. It means people are going to be that much more comfortable. Economies are going to get back open quicker and rebound quicker, which then allows for people to go to the movies and enjoy life again. And that's what people want, ultimately want to do, get out there. So I'm very optimistic. But of course, always in the back of your mind is, what is there the next wave? What is going to happen in the fall? Like, you know, that you're constantly looking at this. And again, it ties back to everything we've been talking about. You got to be really nimble in what you're doing, how you're thinking. You got to keep planning and replanning and replanning and replanning. And that's ultimately what we do. But yeah, the scary thing is what is the next variant that's going to hit and how is that going to affect us? I agree with everything that's been said. I think we need to be cautiously optimistic. But we had a, a small. Well, it was epidemic in 2009 with the AH1N1 
flu that started in Mexico, and we didn't know how deadly it was going to be, so the government shut down everything for a week, and then it took us five weeks to recover, and we thought it, had, it was devastating. You know, it ruined our results for 2009. When this began, that was our only reference point to an epidemic. And so we thought, well, this can be, instead of one week shut down, 10 weeks shut down. We thought 10 times more, that's fair enough, and then 12 weeks of recovery. We never in our wildest dreams did we imagine that a year and a half later we would still be with countries that were fully closed. I agree with everyone. We need to be optimistic, cautiously optimistic, because especially what Mark said, we don't know what the next variant will be. But fortunately enough, every variant has been, I mean, the vaccines have been effective for every variant. The Brazilian variant has not been discussed much but it spread like fire in South America in this, this last spring. So the shutdown in South America came first, especially in Brazil and neighboring countries, because of the Brazilian variant. And yet movies are back open in Argentina and Brazil and Colombia and even Chile and Peru that took over a year and a half to reopen. And people are starting to come back. So I think, as Muki said, you know, the scientific advances are such that I'm confident that this third wave, in my view, is the last wave. I think after this... We will, you know, people also, you know, the vaccination efforts in most even developing markets. I mean, there's, of course, a lot of, you know, markets like in Africa and some markets in Central America that still have very low vaccination rates. So we really need, or those countries really need to work and increase because the variants can arise anywhere. The one arose in South Africa, one in Brazil, one in India, you know, so they can arise anywhere. So that's what we need also to think about how, you know, the international community can help developing countries vaccinate their population. We're all thinking about the booster shots in the developing world, but a lot of countries have not had their first shot yet. So I think we also need to think about that because the variants can come from anywhere. Okay, and what about sort of an overall return to the cinemas, return to the levels of 2019? I mean, I don't think anybody ever expected 2020 to reach 2019. It was just so stratospheric, but we didn't expect at the same time what happened in 2020 to happen, for it to be so low. Mugi, you're very bullish on the last quarter of 21, and you sort of, you've told me you see 2022 is maybe not 2019 levels, but pretty close. How's everybody feeling about that? So we end on a positive note. I grew up in a house that, I'm a third generation in this industry, and I grew up in a house where every five or seven years, someone would come to my father and will tell him, you know, cinema is going to die. TVs will kill you, then the video will kill you, then the DVD will kill whatever. And my father said to me, when anyone come and tells you this, your answer is next year is going to be the best year ever. So 2022 probably will be the best year ever. So we need to wait and see. And uh, I think this is what we need to believe. We never know what the movies will be. And we never know who is the sleeper and who is the disappointment and what is going The lineup for 2022 looks great, but we need to push COVID a little bit more to the side, and then it will be a great year. 2019 was amazing. 2020 on the paper was a great year, but what happened that happened, 2021 also is not going to be. I think that if we will learn to live with COVID, not get rid of COVID, but if we learn to live with COVID, with vaccinations, with all kinds of safety procedures and all this, 2022 could be a very good year and might take us back to 2019 numbers. I think that's a pretty good sort of final line, unless anybody has anything to add, unless, unless you sort of believe completely the opposite. No, listen, I think it's, it's <laughs> warranted that we have 
this cautious optimism for the business going forward. I mean, we're seeing it running. We're seeing it in France. You're seeing it in the UK. You're seeing it in Russia. You are seeing some really great numbers come from markets. And every market is going to be on a different timeline because of how the virus is going and the vaccinations and how each government has dealt with it. But you can see in certain places that we're poised to come back. It's just a matter of time. Okay. And speaking of time, we are out of it. So thank you, everyone. Thank you guys very much. I really appreciate you being thank here. Thank you, Nancy. And all of you guys, thank you. Thank you.